0: You're listening to Schooled with Carla Hulse. Join Carla as she explores K-12 education disruption and has deep dive conversations with ed leaders, ed tech, ed foundations, ed professional service organizations, and ed educators who school her on ed innovations and their impact on educational policy across the country. Here's Carla.
1: I'm Carla, and today's episode, me and my guests will discuss education reform. Is the reform we all want being led from the top, coming from grassroots, or somewhere in the middle? My guest today has the unique perspective as someone who has led education reform efforts from the top, from the bottom, and somewhere in between. Joining me today on School This, Jose Rico. Jose is the director for Truth, Racial Healing, and Transformation Greater Chicago, which is housed at the Chicago Community Trust. For the last three decades, Jose has worked in Chicago schools. He's a former teacher, a former principal, and he has worked on the national level, leading development of educational policy under the President Obama White House. In 2009, Jose was appointed by President Obama to serve on the White House Initiative on Educational Excellence for Hispanics. As the executive director at the White House Hispanic Prosperity Initiative, Jose and his team helped reduce high school dropout rates and increased Latino graduation rates across the country. Jose currently serves as the chief partnership officer with United Way of Metro Chicago, where he leads efforts to provide human services, and increase the leadership capacity of of community-based organizations. And as if all of that wasn't amazing, Jose made a run for the city council, the alderman position of the 12th Ward back in 2019. So welcome to Schooled, Jose. And before we really get started, I want to give our listeners a quick history lesson on community organizing, because I think it's so important that folks understand why you are talking to me today. Um, Because as you know, Jose, back in say the late 1930s, um, Sal Alinsky and Joe Megan crisscrossed the Southwest southwest side of Chicago, which at the time was called Packingtown area. And they were canvassing local priests and urging their parish uh, parishioners to attend the inaugural meeting of the Back of the Yards Neighborhood Council, or the BYNC. So these two were inventing, really, the modern community organizing movement, wouldn't you say? So... They were trying to, I guess, um, convince, right, and eradicate the juvenile delinquency that was happening throughout the neighborhood because of improvement efforts that weren't really hitting their side of town, right? So many delays and in, um, infrastructure support not happening on that side of Chicago, hmm, sound familiar? And so the the youth were kind of left to their own devices. And they were trying to organize and build a coalition to do something for the back of the yards community, right? So this really became the prototype for community organizing around the country. Um, and I think what was telling about the way they were organizing, though, Jose, was that they were confrontational. They were using conflict as a way to get the owners in the community, the city government. They were trying to be a lightning rod to draw uh, draw attention to their cause. So when you think about community organizing now, present day, and maybe let's go back. Let's think about community organizing, say, in the the 80s and 90s and its impact on school reform efforts in Chicago. Do you see an intersection that you had to have community organizing with the the kind of reform efforts in the 80s and the 90s? Or could Chicago decide to reform without community organizing?
0: Yeah, no, there, there wouldn't have been any, uh, grassroots school reform efforts without community organizing. Uh, you know, what uh, Soloninsky was doing and actually Jane Adams before Soloninsky yeah. were really building power. And what Soloninsky was doing was really trying to bring institutional power. These are the parishes, the immigrant organizations at that time who were in the Packy Yard ER District to really build their power, to be able to confront the power structure that had just rampant uh, power over working conditions and living conditions there. And what the Back of the Yards Neighborhood Council did at that time was basically confront the uh, business and political power of the city with institutional power from that part of the city. And that's where some of the concessions came because they saw that it wasn't just a group of people that uh, were mad about the conditions, but there were some real institutions behind their actions. And if, you know, the, they did a lot of actions to force the business community and, uh, and the government to actually uh, win some concessions. Uh, I think it's very similar to what happened in the 80s and the 90s in Chicago, particularly in education. To be able to uh, demonstrate to the Chicago public schools and the school board and, again, the city hall and, and the business community, that schools were not working for uh, a good part of the students that were there and they wanted to be able to get more power and control over the school conditions and and what was happening in school buildings uh during that time that's how the local school council uh movement came about where local community members were able to have more control and autonomy over school's budgets, principal hiring and decision making. And then that's where I think, you know, the the natural progression of then having teachers also develop some power outside of the Chicago Teachers Union to be able to then develop what were some of the working conditions that they were going to create. And that's how, you know, a part of the school reform movement that you and I uh, came to be a part of with the with the teacher-led uh, small learning communities and small schools came about. Again, to be able to try to meet the needs of students and families, and in, in the effort that we were involved in is really trying to support teachers for them to improve their working conditions and obviously the learning conditions for students.
1: Yeah, and I, it's funny. One of um, my guests um, is uh, Kim Nicholas, formerly known as Kim Day, who was one of those original teachers trying to create... Uh, some kind of small school within a school and then eventually starting a charter. And um, thinking back to her conversation, she talked a lot about at first they were kind of given the blessing, yes, go off and innovate, but then slowly get sucked back into the bigger system. And so my question then becomes, can, can bottom up really work when you're trying to break apart such a large structure and i'm thinking again k12 education right so how do you break that up when you're a team of like 100 or even a thousand it just seems insurmountable to me that bottom up works <laughs> am i crazy or am i just you know it just no
0: no i think i think you know within the organizing community there is uh, you know, a, a, a clear strategy, that you need to have a strategy that's autonomous, like we're, we're gonna do this on our own. You're gonna have a strategy that's an outside strategy, and then you have to have a strategy that's an inside strategy. So in the community organizing framework or paradigm, you're not really going to have change unless you're able to do those three things. Mm-hmm. It can't be one or the other, it can be two, it has to be the three, right? Because you have to be able to demonstrate to the system. We have people inside that are gonna support us. <laughs> yeah, We're gonna create hell for you on the outside. <laughs> yeah. And if you don't do either, we don't need you and we're gonna do our own thing. And I think we've seen that play over, over and over in our history. This is why in many school districts, you know, in, in California and in other school mm-hmm. districts, you have these small little school districts that have yeah. broken away from larger school districts because the activists, the parents, the interests are like, if you don't do what we say, we're going to create our own little school district. So we could exist without you, right? Yeah. And now you're seeing a lot of examples, you know, in different school districts right now, particularly on this critical race theory thing, yeah. where you have a parent groups being agitators, Mm -hmm, But then they're mm -hmm. also electing board members, right? So you have to have those three components to be an effective community organizer. When I, you know, when I went into the school reform movement in Chicago, I was a teacher in the ACORN charter school. And ACORN, you know, well, for yes. many people don't know who ACORN is, but ACORN was the national grassroots community organizing group that basically created some charter school to basically create, it comes from the the uh, external pressure and we could mm-hmm. do it without you. And so right. I started as a teacher in an ACORN charter school in Little Village in Chicago. And I saw firsthand how you could be autonomous, but you're going to have less resources. <laughs> right, and it's going right. to be end up working conditions are going to be rough. Right, right. Rough. <laughs> but, but you have to have those three components if you really want to make systematic change.
1: Yeah. Okay. So th- I'm glad you brought that up. So Okay. So let's jump. Let's fast forward a bit, Jose, in your life, career, trajectory. And you move into the system when you start up MAS right? Multicultural mm-hmm. arts school um, in Little Village. Um, but that school in itself was another community organizing a success story. But then what, what propelled you to think that, hey, we can do it here. We can create four small high schools in Little Village and and have the resources. I mean, you guys were backed by a major foundation. I'll leave their name out. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, But you guys got a lot of money. So did you think, okay, now I think we've cracked the nut. We can figure this out?
0: What propelled me to really dedicate my life to education was that that as a child, I hated school. I mean, Mm. I was one of those uh, immigrant kids whose name was taken from him. Right. So I I wasn't Jose Rico. Right. Right. Joe was already taken, Joseph was already taken. (laughs) So, right. I was just Rico. (laughs) <laughs> um so who who there was no bilingual staff in my school when I was a student the only bilingual staff in my school they were not even the cafeteria workers they were the janitors um and my teachers cannot communicate with my mom so I was one of those students that was the last student in the school and the I was literally the I would run out of school every day because I just did not want to, I was placed in a special ed classroom because I didn't speak English. Mm. Uh, So they put a bunch of the bilingual students in the special ed classroom uh, with a teacher that didn't really speak Spanish or didn't know. So most of my schooling, uh, I had a very, I had a terrible experience. It wasn't until I was older, I went to high school and I went to college that I realized, wait a minute, schooling could be actually something that's enriching, that's wonderful, that elevates your consciousness and you become aware and get to socialize with people from different, different backgrounds. So the reason I went into education was because I did not want uh, another child to have uh, the terrible schooling experience that I had. Right, and so that was really my impetus for being in education because I went to school for engineering, uh, and instead right. of going into engineering, I became a high school science teacher at my neighborhood high school. So the opportunity for me to really go and uh, back to my community and help design a school with my community members, I think is something that I knew about. Al- I knew I've always wanted to do. Uh-huh. I just didn't know how. And yeah. it was fort- and I was fortunate that during that time, there was a group of parents, um, mainly moms in Little Village, uh, 19 of them that went on a 21-day hunger strike against Paul Ballas to open up a school that was originally designated, there was originally $60 million uh, earmarked for that school in Little Village, but that money was instead taken to build uh, a school in the gentrified community green neighborhood, a Walter mm-hmm. Payton school, and mm-hmm. then on the North side, North side college prep. And so the money from Little Village was taken away. And so these moms went on a hunger strike and an incredible organizing effort. And I came in to help them design uh, what the campus will look like.
1: Yeah, it's, it's interesting that you bring up that story, which was, um... Amazing at the time. And again, it's this, this is always my struggle because I always see that there should be a role in the federal government or some higher entity, it doesn't have to be the federal government,
0: mm-hmm.
1: that is always looking out for equity and access. If someone were looking out for that, they would have said, you cannot, and it, this is what it is steal that money and put it yet in, in an over resourced community because. Yes, it's in the Cabrini-Green neighborhood, but Walter Payton is a selective enrollment school. looks nothing like right. the kids who live there, right? And so
0: Cabrini-Green like, was gone by that time.
1: Right. All the buildings have been gone. The neighborhood yeah. had been demolished. So who's looking out except for folks in Little Village who are, who are starving themselves for almost 20 days for a school? That just doesn't seem right to me. So again, I'm like, who needs to have some oversight for equity? And is it sorry, Carla, you just every man for themselves. It's the capitalistic, you just kind of pull yourselves up by the bootstrap. And if you live in Little Village, or if you live in Lawndale, or if you live in Austin, you be damned. And if you have a school, good for you. If you don't, too bad. Or should there be some role for a something, I don't know what that thing is, to always have their eye on equity and access? I don't know what the question is. But that is your example of, of the creation of Little Village, literally because your money was being stolen. Then the community has to, you know, literally almost kill itself in order for a school to be built. So uh, I don't, I don't know.
0: Yeah, no, you know, I um, when I went to DC and and, and worked at the federal government, uh, I really got a, a good sense or a you know an idea of why local control is such an important component of the educational system here in our country, right? why uh, school districts exist, why the states are the primary drivers of education policy, and basically that the federal government provides some, not even any oversight, right? Some guidance, right? It's not even oversight, right? Um, And when I first got there, I thought, oh, well, you know, what is the role of the federal government? And then when I saw some very important things like, for example, trying to address the dropout issue or trying to implement some kind of education, whether it's arts or STEM or bilingual ed or special ed or whatever, the leaders at the federal level would always say, but we can't do that nationally. We can't implement national policy because that is not with the system of government that we have in this country. It all has to be at the state level and at the local level. So I saw a lot of the downfall in mm. having a locally controlled education yes. system. Yes. Um, and obviously, like I said, leaders and head policy thinkers and all of that, they were very limited of what they could do. So I saw the negative side of that when I was over there, especially when you know I was like, well, we're trying to do good stuff. Right. And their response was, well... Uh, you think it's good. <laughs> right? Yeah. What's to yes. say, four years from now, people who replace you want to do something yeah. that you think is terrible. Yeah. And now you have to live with it, right? Yeah. So no,
1: like- I know, yeah.
0: And we saw that four years ago, right? So for me yes. or a couple a couple of years ago. So for me, I see the good and the bad, but but I do agree, you know, and this is one of the things that over this last year, these last two years over the pandemic, I, I think it's become more and more clear to me. And it's exactly what you said, Carla, is that we need to have an accountability structure, right, within the school board and within the states of Illinois or at the state system that guarantees that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you know, is it an elected school board? You know, in Chicago, we still don't have that. Is it some something that really mandates the funding formula? Is it a constitutional rights at the state level? Because yeah. we don't have that. Like, what is at mm-hmm. least one of those things that ensures yeah. that schools are funded, and that there is local control that's going to prevent just gross inequities in our in our education system.
1: Yeah, you bring up a really great. point. I see it more like a Supreme Court, meaning that whatever this entity is, it doesn't get swayed by election mm-hmm. cycles. Right? I mean, so you were under Obama's administration. You guys were trying mm-hmm. to do great things. This is where it gets kind of weird because the feds do roll out federal mandates. We've got No Child Left Behind. We've got ESSA and that, you know, so they do have some teeth. So to, to say that people were saying we can't do that is kind of odd to me, but that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> so I'd see, I see something that lasts beyond election cycles, because I think a part of this problem, why we have people called education reformers, and I'm using air quotes, mm-hmm. is because really what we're doing is um, constantly trying to do away with the next bad thing that gets rolled out by an administration, right? It's like, you know, how many years have we spent trying to dismantle No Child Left Behind and we've mm-hmm. figured out how to get most of that buried away? Now something else comes. And so if you have this entity that is, that is only overseeing equity and access and never goes away, it it gets nuanced as we become more enlightened people, or as a young folks say, woke, our, our eyes are opened more. It may expand a little bit, but um, otherwise, because what are we reforming? We can't just be reforming STEM. We want STEM or we, we want uh, black studies, right? It's, it's Mm -hmm. bigger than that. And so Mm -hmm. it can't, you can't leave up the, the the found, the fundamental changes that need to happen in K twelve education up to community organizers, right. school boards, you know, it just that doesn't sit well with me.
0: <laughs> no. no, I so agree. Question,
1: yeah. Okay. Okay. Go ahead.
0: I agree. I agree because what we have now are fifty four education <laughs> yes. systems in our country. Yes. Right. Yeah. Uh, because we have the fifty states, yep. the District of Columbia, yep. and the territories. Correct. Right, because Puerto Rico's yeah. system is very different from everybody else. And then the other territories is very different. And then you have the, the, uh, the, uh, the military the education DOD system. Yep, yeah. Which yeah. is very different. So that's 50, it is. Yeah, 54 yeah. education systems in our country. And I agree, I think that we definitely need to have an amendment, another constitutional amendment, yeah. or a Supreme Court decision because, you know to yes. get to get congress to put a constitutional amendment right now and then yes. I just don't see that happening soon but I think you are absolutely right because if we don't do it at that level the the funding we don't have the adequate funding and then we also need to fundamentally rethink our education system because we, you know you and I studied it for a while like <laughs> we are in such an archaic we education system That is serving a group of folks, but the majority of the people that are in the public school system are not being served by it well.
1: Correct. So let's talk about that rethinking what because I have my own ideals and I started to share a little of those in my first episode where I talked about this this design flaw theory. Right. Mm -hmm. So let's get our let's get our hands around this. What is it that we would reform? What do you think needs to be reformed? Let's start putting some stuff out there. Rico, so we can you and I can change the world. <laughs> We're back at the small schools workshop. We're trying to change the world.
0: Well, so so let's let's look at how education gets built in our country. You, uh, it's the economic, it's the political economy, it's the ideology, um, mm-hmm. and then it's obviously the societal. What is the societal purpose of education? What's the political uh, economic uh, benefit? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, who's it going to serve? And it's right. what's the ideology that we are trying to implement. So we need to be able to answer from my point of view in this moment in time and history what do we need in those three spheres to prepare the students that we have for the next 12, 16, 20 years to be able to shape the history of our country, right? And mm-hmm. for me, you know what one of the things that I learned and you know when I took a trip to Cuba to, to look at their education system, I saw that play out in a very clear way to me that uh, that was the first time I've experienced a national education yeah. system, right? Yep. And then when I was at the Department of Education I went to Mexico and met with the Minister of Education there and understood how their national education system works. And the one thing that was really clear to me for both of those systems is that their ideology of what education is for was yeah. crystal clear. I don't if you have to ask 10 people <laughs> in our country what is the ideology of our education system, people, half the people will be like, "What do you mean by ideology?" I know,
1: I know, right? <laughs> exactly, right? Yes, so it's sad.
0: So that was that's one, and then and then let's not even talk about political economy. Right? Yeah. Or or how do we define our society? So, for example, you know, when I uh, opened, so, Jose,
1: uh, uh, you say yeah, this. That I mean, so so that's depressing. So, so, so what? I, we've got to get out of this down. We can't continue with the current structure because, and I don't know who I had this conversation with the other day where they were saying, well, you know, Carla, it does work for some. I go, yeah, yeah, yeah. I go, my kids did fine. Right. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't necessarily the schooling they received in the building they went to. It was the other experiences and mm-hmm. the 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 resources I could put behind if they needed it. Tutoring, all the sporting stuff that they needed. I mean, it was all the other stuff that we were funding separately. I go, so if we want to be really real, public school, if you had nothing outside of, out of the school, but really doesn't work. Um, right. Even for kids and gifted and talented and all that stuff, they're still getting help outside of school and experiences yeah. outside of school. So... So if we can't even agree that it's not working, do we just try to still create this kind of nationalized education system? How do we even start there?
0: I, I think it goes again. I my frame of reference is in those three pillars, what is a society that we want to inform the education system? And how do we want the education system to inform our society? Right. And so for me, what I'm very clear about is that. We live in a multicultural, multi-ability society, and so our education system needs to reflect that without question. So mm-hmm. that means that those students that need more services uh, mm-hmm. and resources should receive them in our public education system. Back to your point, right? Yes. Another belief that I have is that we should really have a society and an education system that's not winner take all yeah that's not about those who have the most should get the most concepts and <laughs> ideas that to you and i are pretty yeah. basic stuff yeah i mean the majority of people would not agree with those things correct and to me that's the problem to me that's the that's part of the fundamental issue is that uh, which again going goes back to your a uh, part of your solution is we need something that's bigger of, yeah. uh, uh, an amendment or a Supreme court opinion to be able to mandate those things. Cause I don't know if a bottom up approach will get us there. Uh, yeah. but I also don't know if a top down approach will get us there either.
1: So if we were to, I, okay, 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 okay. Okay. I think, I, I think I see the light. I'm feeling really positive here. So though, do we need the bottom up and maybe folks in the middle, to keep elevating this message that you and I are talking about to get to the top so that the top can say, oh, we, we as members of Congress or whomever, we now agree with you. We now see that we need to have an amendment because otherwise are we going to leave it up to the folks that we've elected or to one day get struck by lightning and go, oh, yeah, we need more of a nationalized approach at this. So we have to be on the ground kind of beating the drum. How is this change going to happen, though?
0: Yeah, no, I mean, you know, I go back and forth and again. So this year, these past couple of years, has really been an eye-opening for me around the role of school in our community because of the pandemic. I mean, here in Chicago, I think we missed an incredible opportunity for our schools to play a critical role in the well-being of our students and our families. Now, you know, the schools did a lot of things, you know, they, they uh, provided free meals to people mm-hmm. during the pandemic. They, uh, the public schools in the city got Internet connection for close to 60,000 families that were not eligible for that. They were able to, you know, keep people on the payroll, our employees in CPS. It's an important part of, of our city's economy in terms of the people mm-hmm. who work there. So people were still working. So they did that. But I believe that this was an incredible opportunity to make schools more than let's see how much content we could still deliver in these incredible uh, circumstances to try to lessen the impact of the standardized test scores. So now you don't know this, but I have five children in my home <laughs> that were uh, that were e-learning That were e-learning this past year and a half. City college students.
1: He was gonna say your son in college. Oh, yeah. yeah.
0: He's he's his last year of college, and and four kids: junior, senior, freshman, sixth grader. Right?
1: (laughs) God bless you. And so
0: I saw right, (laughs) I saw firsthand what was happening in the classrooms with that range of students and what just kept I just kept like banging my head against the wall I was like why are the schools doing this why can the schools really focus on the connections and well-being and really mm-hmm. looking at how teachers and school personnel could support the mental uh, well-being of not just not just the mental but the financial Mm-hmm, well-being mm-hmm. and uh, and the health well-being by doing instead of trying to shove down the same amount of curriculum through a computer portal, why couldn't we do uh, Zumba classes with whole families? Right? Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. Why couldn't we do cooking classes for respiratory? Yeah. Why couldn't we learn how to form block clubs? So if yeah. somebody in in a block uh, needed a diapers or needed to go to a hospital that the, the, the black was gonna be able to take care of that. Like, why couldn't we use the connections, the powerful connections that exist in many of our schools to help and support and take care of each other? And that was squandered. Yeah. Now, if we were able to do that, the power that the schools and the communities would have because they we would have been organized, we would have had a year of organizing within ourselves. We <laughs> yes. would have been able to be such a powerful force in education, but that was squandered.
1: Yeah. So I go back and forth on this, um, kind of the role of schools. Mm-hmm. Um, when people talk about, you know, and, and and my governor just signed into state law that, you know, free lunch now going forward. And that should have already been that. Again, I see that as as a governmental thing, just like as we were signing on, folks, um, Jose was teasing me because I'm in the forest. Yes, where we don't have Wi-Fi, right? And so I don't see getting a hotspot, even though they don't work here. But if I had kids in, in school it's not my school's responsibility for my kids to have a hotspot. It's my government's job to make sure that the entire country has Wi Fi. That is the government's job. So I fight that the schools get, and yeah. I don't, this is a strong word, forced to mm-hmm. play the role of mom, dad, city government, national government, mm-hmm. solver of homeless issues, solver of food, you know, insecurities that's not the school's job. If, mm-hmm. if schools could have organized around that, what they are responsible for and what they are not and demanded, we want infrastructure so everyone has it. I go back and forth on that. I mm-hmm. understand what you're saying, but I really do. There, there were some missed opportunities where schools should not be the catch-all for everything, right? Because ah. then we don't get our, our jobs done. Then I don't get to teach because now I'm doing I'm doing everything else.
0: I totally agree. I, you know what? I totally agree with you (laughs) Um, and you're absolutely right. And and I think the reason why schools become the default, and again, this is from the experience here in Chicago, it's different somewhere else, is that in Chicago, the largest workforce are teachers and school staff, that's why. And the reason why that's the case, because in the state of Illinois, over the last 30 years, uh, government, we had 12 mental health clinics in the city of Chicago, now we only have three, right? Uh, all of the services for, like you're saying, Wi-Fi and basic services mm-hmm, over the last mm-hmm. 30 years have been cut by 60%. So so in many places, the, the only government worker that families see on a consistent basis is their teacher or their school personnel. Mm-hmm yeah so I, I agree I agree. If we put it on them, then we're yeah. done i mean we're we're at like at the last we're like at the bottom. <laughs> yes. we're like at, yeah, we're like at the end of the line if we're relying on our paraprofessionals to give us first aid,
1: yes, that's where we are, and I'm like, enough, enough yeah. and that's and that's why I'm saying it's fundamentally broken, and so I'm trying to figure out how to get out of this and I think it has to be a both and, right? So we have to, as individual communities, start to hear one another because we're really all saying the same thing. Even if you're Mm -hmm. ranting and raving about critical race theory, even though you don't even know what it is, you're, you're saying it because you want something out of your kid's school, right? You're committed to a certain kind of education as you and I are. So it's 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 this recognition that our schools aren't doing what we want them to do. We don't know what that new thing is, but it's not this current stuff. And so if we could all collectively be saying to our elected officials, beating ourselves up at school board meetings isn't going to get us anywhere. We need an oversight. And it can't be a secretary of education who comes in every 4 years does really has no authority. Um and it's got to be broader than that. So I, that's how I see us getting towards this more kind of nationalized, and it's not everything is nationalized. It's, it's this oversight around particular things that, again, kind of you were saying this kind of ideological stance, right? Equity right. and access mm-hmm. and allocating better and different resources where equity and access are much more needed. It's needed everywhere but there are you know obviously particular communities in which it impacts the most. Um so then how do we how, how do we get there? What are we missing right now? What are we not doing that it seems like they're, we're pitting parent groups and communities against each other right now. So how do we come more together so we can have more of this grassroots bottom up impacting what's coming down from the top?
0: Yeah. Yeah. No. and And I, and I do think I think, you know, I think the polarization of our politics has been. It's, I think, one of the main barriers for us mm-hmm. to be able to get there, right? Because yeah. at the end of the day, you know, our our education system in many places uh, is operating on a shoestring budget, right? Yeah. And state governments uh, are trying to cut as much taxes as possible so an Amazon could be built in that state. And so we could have more billionaires in space, right? Right. Um. And so that's what's driving the conversation instead of instead of us driving the conversation on getting more resources so we could all have that. Yeah. Uh, the conversation is uh, not about getting more resources to help the rural rural Illinois. You know, so the state of Illinois just passed an equity funding formula. The people that were most against it were rural Illinois mm-hmm. and they received the largest amount of money out of this equity formula, hmm. right? Because they, yeah. they and you know this, because you know you know, you know these areas of the country, they I are do. less funded than the city of Chicago. Yes, right they are. But they were fighting it because they thought the money was going to go to Chicago public schools. Correct. Right. So there is this huge disconnect of what are our shared interests because yes. of where we're from or how we look or whatever. Yes. Um, and we cannot agree on that when we should really think about, uh, you know, the reality is, is that our education system is running on a shoestring budget and yeah. that uh, the way the funding formulas and the policies are being made, like you mentioned, are not serving the interest of the many. It's really yeah. just serving the interest of the few that really don't need it because they got the money to do all the other stuff.
1: They do. Yeah. So so again, maybe it's in our maybe it's in the ways in which we are organizing and, and that's kind of the downfalls right. of community organizing because it is your community. And so you tend to be insular. So how do we, how do we step outside of our communities when we're trying to community organize around the same things? Like So how do we do that?
0: Yeah. So, you know, and and you know this in California, um, the way to, because you have to do statewide efforts, right? And in order to do a statewide effort to get people from rural, suburban, and city to be able to just see an issue and understand each other's issues and really look at what's actually happening. Just to do that and a very basic awareness and understanding level takes tens of millions of dollars per year of sustained funding to do that. Who is doing that? Where does that money come from, Carla? That money cannot come from government, right? Mm -hmm. And we know that whenever a referendum happens in California... (laughs) <laughs> Who funds those referendums?
1: Oh, yeah, totally. Oh, totally. Ask, it's the ask big the,
0: interest groups, right?
1: Oh, yeah. Ask, ask the Uber and Lyft drivers. They got themselves exactly. in, a, in a pickle. <laughs> yeah.
0: Right? So, so to me, the question, is, the question is, if, we, if that's the way to drive policy at the state level, and the only way to make those connections with, with local groups and connect them and understand the issues and be able to develop, it's multi-year. It's multi-multi-million. Mm-hmm. And it's Mm -hmm. multi, and you have to hire staff from those agencies and training. And right now, there's very few people outside of electoral politics. I can't think of that has the resources and infrastructure to do that.
1: So what about, because these folks are in our space anyway, foundations, right? They're around, I mean, that could be their role, because I would rather have them funding um, the redesign of K-12 education rather than their own little, huh, I think I want Common Core. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, So I'm still trying to figure out how to get over this hump. So that we are talking to our brothers and sisters who don't look like us, who don't speak our same language, but we all have really fundamentally the same concerns and want the best. And all it is is we want the best for our kid, right?
0: You know, I think I think foundations could play that role. But I, you know, honestly, I think that there's very few foundations that have that amount of money, right? Because it's, it's it's a lot yes. of money. Yes. Um, um, you know, foundations need to, you know, it has to be at least a five to ten years. Funding mm-hmm, commitment. Mm-hmm. Very few foundations do that level of funding in terms of years to one effort to be able to do that. And I think you know uh, on the policy side, a lot of foundations because again, foundations are where the the you know foundations are where rich people uh, leave money for tax shelter right. purposes. <laughs>
1: yes, I know. Yes, yes.
0: If you play this education reform vision that you and I have out they're not going to be able to have money to put in foundations because they're going to be taxed more. Oh, Okay. So it's not in their interest in many of their interests to fund something that a, a part of the answer, not the whole answer, but a mm-hmm. part of the answer is to fund public education at a higher rate.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But that, that again, that's going to take um, right now it's state controlled. And so it's up to individual governors to, Make that a commitment and priority. And in California, we just keep raising taxes.
0: But but again, so who are they taxing? Are are you being uh taxed at the same rate as a multimillionaires? You're not. You're being taxed higher.
1: Yeah. Oh, totally higher. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's and so that's the problem. Right. That state, a- state. Yeah, but that's also state by state. So in in Iowa. You're paying very few taxes compared to what I'm paying in, in California. So if you've got equity and access issues in Iowa, oh, well, we don't have any money to do that. We're going to, we, we can't do that here. Right. So a- again, even if, if we're, if we're leaving up to, leaving it up to governors, we're still going to have these gaps no matter where you live. And I'm trying to do away with this whole zip code predicts your
0: outcome. Right. <laughs> no, yeah. I, it's it's not an easy answer, Carla. No, it's I not an, an easy answer. answer. <laughs>
1: you worked at the White House. You worked, I mean, when you were at the White House, were you guys having these difficult conversations or were, were people just so worried about making sure he got elected again I'm trying to figure out were they just like next we're trying to ramp up for the next election I, I hear you Jose that's really lofty sorry we can't tackle re- reforming all yeah,
0: of K-12. I was never I was never in a conversation where we were uh, talking about the election and oh, what we needed okay. to do for it. never never in those conversations and and we were very clear uh, and you know in a year before, the election, because I was there for uh, both terms, uh, I mm-hmm. left after the first year of the second term, the year before the reelect, those conversations happened um, on a Saturday, uh, mm-hmm. with a different group of people that was focused on the campaign, it didn't happen with people like me and others who were focused on the policy. Um, okay. So that was it was a very clear that's, separation, that's
1: promising. Okay, that's, that's exciting. Yeah.
0: yeah. But the thing that we did talk a lot, was what were the priorities and so for example one of the priorities on the education side right because it's it's very clear at the national level that on the education side you know the big goal when i was there was to once again have the highest college graduation rate in the world right mm-hmm. and at some point we had the highest graduation rate in the world and when uh, i was there in dc we were 18th in the world. And when you looked at the numbers, the group that was going to uh, raise our ranking in the number of college graduates was the Latino community. Because, Mm -hmm. you know, right now nationally, you know, 50% of our kindergartens are Latino and quarter of our high school students were Latinos, right? So what ended up happening is during those eight years, the largest amount of uh, federal dollars went to school districts and education organizations in those eight years than than the total of education dollars combined over the last 30 years. And so what ended up happening was the Latino dropout rate dropped for the first time in in the history of uh, the trend, and the Latino graduation rate took a big jump during the during the 10 years that from the time I left 10 years back so they started increasing mm-hmm. before that who was bush right yes obama. okay yes <laughs> w so they yeah w so they started going up with w but then during the obama years they actually went up significantly and people always ask me like why do you think that was and to me and the research clearly puts it out it was the money It was the resources that were put out there. Hmm. That was one. And the second thing was a lot of the policymakers at the state level, at the local level, not only received the money, but were able to implement new programs with the money that they received. So for example, you know, Gear Up that has some success, I Mm -hmm. would argue that we could have more success with Gear Up. Gear Up had some success, programs that support Gear Up receive money. And so gear up as a program became more successful, not because gear up got more money, but because right. other programs that helped those families and those students were yep. able to get resources. And so therefore gear up became more successful. Cause back to your point, Carla, if we expect gear up and teachers to solve the poverty issues of our families yep. and then we're done. Yep.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, that's that's really where my career started in, in Chicago was mm-hmm. Upward Bound. I worked at Upward Bound yep. at Columbia. Yep. Um, amazing program, federal, it's a trio program, mm-hmm. right? But it's a federal initiative that this is important, that first generation kids get to college. And that's all I'm asking. Make this right. a priority, federal government. And so I'm trying to think of, um he's seven months in, is this Biden's seventh month? I don't even know what month yeah. it is anymore. Yeah, yeah. Um, And I mean, are you encouraged by Secretary Cardona or what you're hearing from this administration's thoughts around more nationalization of certain priorities like school funding? Like, I mean, the infrastructure bill is phenomenal. Let's just get that, that puppy signed already. Um, But just this more like schools can't do it all on their own. The federal government does have a role and responsibility.
0: You know, I think, I mean, again, you know, I'm grading this in the previous administration. So
1: (laughs) (laughs) God, please.
0: Um, So I think, I think they're doing good stuff on a lot of different levels. My criticism of them and, 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 you know, and I have friends that are working there. Uh, My criticism is, again, back to our school reform question, is they are not addressing the fundamental problem of Washington. And it's the Mm -hmm. filibuster Mm -hmm. and it's Mm -hmm. the the voting rights. Because the Voting Rights Act and the filibuster, if you don't address those and stop playing these politics of respectability, it don't Mm -hmm. matter
1: what programs you put up. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter.
0: You can can double the budget for trio it'll be nice for three years and yeah. then what yes. so that that to me is the the big issue that i have with the current administration is that uh unless you really unapologetically put that forth and put the reasons why mm-hmm. and get dc statehood and and really try to address some of these issues and really communicate why this is going to be beneficial for west virginia and why Absolutely. this is going to be benefit you have to.
1: Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Why is it? Unless you do yeah. that.
0: All yeah. that other stuff is just to me, it's not that important. Yeah. It is important. It is important. But it's not, it's not uh the transformational uh change that uh that frankly he said he was gonna be.
1: Right. So we'll end on that note, man.
0: <laughs> okay.
1: <laughs> that's great. So thank you all for listening on today's episode of Schooled. Thank you for joining me, Jose, today and i would like anything to... for you carla
0: anything for you.
1: <laughs> so again join me next week when i have a new guest and a new ed disruptor
0: thank you for listening schooled with carla hulse is available wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts including spotify apple podcast stitcher iheart radio and amazon music